Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston, and this is where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter, Built by Scott, and Instagram at King O'Kane, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page, Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to empower and inspire a community of people who take every opportunity to live a high-performing life. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. If you're in human performance today, you recognize that the industry has changed. Gone are the days of highly focused specialists who live in their isolated lanes, working without the understanding of the whole human being. The world of human performance is about integration today. It's about recognizing what your client needs to do to perform at their highest potential, discovering the parts of the puzzle of performance that need work, while keeping this person moving, training, performing, and succeeding seamlessly. Reconditioning is an operating system for this new world of human performance. The practice honors the role of each specialization and helps define the most powerful and tactical use of interventions that will make a difference. You don't take your car to the garage only when it's broken. You schedule for regular maintenance so that it keeps running smoothly when you need it. The human body is no different and reconditioning professionals are those best prepared to keep the human body running. Check out our courses at ReconditioningHQ.com today. Follow our robust educational programming and become the reconditioning professional everyone wants to work with. Matrix Fitness is one of the world's leading edge manufacturers and suppliers of human performance equipment. I am proud to have them as a sponsor of the Leave Your Mark podcast because I know they are dedicated to getting more people moving. Movement is medicine. All humans are designed to move. And if this pandemic has taught us anything, it's that we need movement more today than ever. Stuck in our homes, restricted from much of what we have done socially, getting physical by any means possible is essential. Whether you are at home and looking for equipment that will keep you moving, or you train people for a living, Matrix is there to provide you with the equipment you need to succeed and the advice to make it happen. Matrix has more than 500 products catering to the medical, fitness, and athletic performance markets. Matrix also delivers a wide range of complete programming solutions to build strength, explosiveness, speed, and agility in athletes of all kinds. In this last year, Matrix engaged performance coach Mark Fitzgerald as head of the Matrix Canada performance team to help you make the right decisions on your performance needs. For more information and a free consult, go to teamupwithmatrix.com forward slash CA today. Hey there. If you've been pondering taking the leap into reconditioning or you have done reconditioning before and you just need to upgrade or take the next step, just want to let you know a few of the things that are going on and that are changing in the reconditioning world. Uh, First and foremost, we have added applied neurology to all of our courses. It's uh, turbocharged the process. Really, if you're not addressing the neurological system, you're missing one of the most important aspects of um, reconditioning and rehabilitation and training uh, that's out there. Fundamentally, for years, we've all ignored that central governing system. Uh, in favor of working on the musculoskeletal and the biomechanics. And we've got to get that neuro piece in there. Uh, And reconditioning has brought that to the table. So that's a big change. The other big change, everything we have is online. You can digest at your own pace all three courses. The third course has material online and there's a live 
part that brings us all together, uh, the reconditioning collab. R1 and R2 are completely online and available to you to digest. And what we've changed now that we think is going to make a huge difference is normally when you take one of these courses, it's like drinking from a fire hose, a lot of information, whether you're doing it online or live. And now what we're going to do is we're going to have these eight-week rolling training programs that are going to go over eight weeks. Once a week, we're going to meet and walk through all the materials so you really get a good feeling for it. You can ask your questions as you roll along and get through the material on your own. It gives you some accountability on a week-to-week basis. Um, We're going to roll these over a few times in the year. So if you can't make one, you can make another one. If you can miss one meeting one time, you can watch it in another circulation. And on top of that, we're going to record it all so you'll have access to it. And the only preface to accessing it is we want you to become a member of the Reconditioning Revolution Mastermind Community. That's starting March 28th, and so is our first R1 Foundations eight-week training program. And in that mastermind, which is effectively a separate program, but it is associated with. It's 20 bucks a month. We're going to meet once a week. We're going to do case studies, guest interviews, guest presentations, Q&A sessions. We're going to roll through a calendar of events every month. You'll have access to that for 20 bucks a month along with a series of videos and uh, all kinds of materials that we've acquired and housed and saved in our um, web portal. And we're going to continue to grow that along with the outcomes of some of these different labs. You'll have access to all that. And really, it's about networking, connecting, bringing the community together, uh, connecting on a regular basis. So within that mastermind community, we'll roll these lab programs that we're going to do for each course, R1, R2, and R3, in those masterminds. So if you're in the course, you get to come and hang out and you know, get your questions answered, see how other people are using the material, etc. So it's really about everybody learning to use reconditioning and to make it empower their practice. The other a big a piece of news, uh, the reconditioning um, HQ.com is hosting the International Hockey Performance Summit. It is June 10th to 12th in Mont-Tremblant, Quebec. We are going to rock the world of hockey performance. If you are interested in hockey performance in any way, whether you're a therapist or a training professional, this is where you want to be June 10 to 12 in Mont-Tremblant. You want to check out any of that, you can go to ReconditioningHQ.com and check out the IHPS page. All the information is there, and we look forward to seeing you in Mont-Tremblant, Quebec this summer. All right, enough of that. Let's get on to podcast. Welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston. Today, I am actually doing a live one, which I don't do very often, and I'm really excited to be with a living legend of Mont-Tremblant, <laughs> Philip Poirier, who I met a number of years ago, has been Huge uh, leader in a lot of different things in the area that I live in, and I just wanted to tell his story and uh, his background and stuff, so I invited Phil today. Welcome, Phil. Thank you for having me, man. How you doing? <laughs> I'm very good. Why don't you tell the listener, like, uh, you know, you have this illustrious past of uh, all kinds of sporting endeavors and things you've gotten into, so walk me back. You you, you grow up here, or where did you grow up? Exactly? Yeah, I, I grew up actually in Saint-Jerome, which is about 45 minutes south from Tremblant, and uh, my parents had a cottage on Lake Superior, which is on the north side of um, uh, Skeel. 
and we uh, used to come up here every weekend and uh, ski on on the mountain here and uh, played hockey as a kid in the weekends and then I'd go to the rink very early and then put the ski boots on and spend the afternoon here on the on, on the ski hill and yeah I moved in Tremblant full-time in 97 and uh, my goal was to I was really into skiing and my goal was to, uh, to become a, a professional skier if, if that was even possible back then but uh, yeah I was very passionate about skiing freestyle skiing to be exact and mm -hmm. um, we uh, kind of uh, started a new a new jam of skiing where with the twin tip skis and all that stuff so uh, that was you know pretty new in 98 so I was working at the caribou at night and uh, skiing all day partying all night and skiing all day so that was an interesting time for sure like the life of trauma yeah what did your what did your parents do uh, my dad's a dentist while well, retired now but my dad was a dentist and my mom used to run the clinic that he uh, that he owned and uh, they're you know both pretty involved in in, in sports, my dad uh, played hockey, and uh, he was an avid skier. He used to uh, to take some trip and uh, go to uh, the Bugaboos to go alley skiing and stuff. Nothing, you know, nothing very serious. But he, he loved he loved skiing and uh, taught us uh, his passion at a very young age. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, it's so walk me back through skiing. Like your family gets you up your skiing. You're, when are you like going from I'm skiing recreationally to I'm seriously going to try to become a competitive skier? And then where, does it switch from, did you start in sort of alpine and then move into freestyle? How did that cramp? I always sort of like free ski, to be honest with you, because mm -hmm. because I was playing hockey in the morning, I wasn't part of any ski uh, ski uh, competition ski scene or any, any moguls or alpine because, you know, Hockey was my first passion, mm. so you know I uh, I play hockey in the morning and then just go on the hill and ski and I always had a tendency of trying to hit jumps and bumps and do do I learned my first uh, 360 I was eight years old by myself and uh, once I've learned that it was a never-ending game all I wanted to do was do a 360 so I'd take the little palma lift up hit the same jump over and over and do a 360 and and come back down and go back up and the guy at the uh, the palma was like it's a big mountain why are you always looping the same little you know the same little lift I was like that's what I like to do so yeah pretty much free free skiing was from day one and uh I, uh, like I said, I had a very uh, a big passion for, for being in the air. And uh, in 1998, I started to be, I, I was hanging, I was the only skier in Tromland. I was hanging out in the terrain park. It was forbidden for skiers to be in, mm. uh, in the terrain park. It was a snowboard only mm. area. And growing up, and you know it was you had to hike to do some some jumps because they would revoke your pass and <laughs> you know the train park was like finally that place where everybody could go and um be able to jump and not being uh, being uh, hassled by the ski patrol, so it was it was pretty cool. But then again, we couldn't mm. skiers weren't allowed in there, right, so right. all my friends were snowboarders. I stuck to skiing. I I did a little bit of snowboarding about three years, but I went back to skiing. I felt more comfortable in that that position, and uh, yeah, I just just started to do what my friends were doing on snowboard and mm. doing it on my skis. So landing backward with before we even had twin tip skis and. And just trying to imitate what these guys were doing on the snowboard, grabbing my skis. Well, that's, my that's skis. the thing I want to unpack a little bit because I think people now kind of think 
with the two the two animals of freestyle skiing and freestyle snowboard, so to speak, that everybody kind of thinks it's always existed. But sort of take me back a little bit because you kind of had 70s, 80s skiing was, you know, it was alpine skiing. There was no such thing as snowboarding. Then all of a sudden yeah. this beast called snowboarding comes along and nobody wants them no, on the hills. It. I think there was even, you weren't even allowed to have a pass to snowboard if I'm well, not yeah. mistaken and, or something to that. And you're right because you had to actually <laughs> go through a little course. They had to approve you by watching you snowboarding to see if you were going to be a danger to yourself or others around you, you know? <laughs> so you had to, to go with a ski patrol for about an hour and, you know, it'd take you in certain different hills and, and steepness and see how you were turning and see if you could break. And then you had that pass and you were allowed to go on the ski resort. But back then, a lot of ski resort didn't even accept them. So it was, uh, yeah, like you said, you know, there was alpine skiing, then the hot dog years came. So, it's, you know, skiing was, you know, kind of cool. It's like long hair and, yeah, yeah. you know, doing moguls and jumps and, uh, and then snowboarding kind of like took that all away because snowboarding became the new uh, core sport that everybody wanted to do. It was fresh, you know, a different position and came a little bit from the influence of, of uh, skateboarding, which mm. was growing a lot in the 80s. So it was just a way for us East Coast, North, Northeast and Northwest people to, to, to do the, the sport, you know, all year long because you can skateboard here on the East Coast during the winter. So people would switch to snowboarding. And it was, uh, yeah, it just, it just really literally took off. And mm. skiers were, all, younger skiers were sort of like, disappearing like everybody was switching to to the snowboarding and that's the cool thing about you know what me and the boys did in around 98 99 when when we pushed towards the the, the twin tip ski part because they, they brought the coolness factor back into skiing and then all of a sudden you know skiers were respected again and it was uh it was so how cool. did that develop the twin tips so tell me uh, the story actually the, yeah the the it's pretty interesting because a few companies had some some uh some twin twin tips uh, prototype i'm thinking of uh Rosigal had one k2 had one and then uh, a friend of mine mike douglas from the from the west coast who was on the um, the uh, national mogul team back then with along with jf cusson vincent Dorion, and jp Claire, and these guys sort of like put Put a um, a project together to get a real good because the twin tips that were out there they were too short either you know too soft so they they really. Uh, came up with a, a, a design that uh, what they needed or what they wanted as a ski for, to be able to do what they wanted to do, mm. and every ski companies reject them except Salomon. Wow! Salomon uh, took them on board, uh, developed the 1080, and then the rest is, is pretty much history. Because the second year Salomon sold more twin tips than every other ski combined, so it was wow. it just took off like crazy. I mean, you know, race skis were still pretty popular, but yeah. the um, the, the 1080 uh, ski became the, the most sold ski for, for Salomon for a couple of years, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, from there, it just took off because the possibility of, uh, of, of, of all the tricks. Because back when I far, first started skiing, if you did a 360, a 720, backflip, front flip, that was pretty much it. And then you had the twister spread and all that stuff. But, you know, we, weren't, we wanted to sort of like get away from that because... We wanted to innovate. We wanted the uh, skiing to be cool again, mm. and um, a twin tip ski definitely allowed everybody to to you know up their game because right. it just gave so many opportunities for uh, new tricks and all 
you know, they all came from snowboarding in a way, but it was, uh, it was, uh, every time we were up on the hill, there was something new happening. So mm-hmm. it was it, definitely exciting years. When did the sort of the, the park phenomena, whether snowboard or skiing start really like did, who, was, uh, who was building those first parks? The first, um, that's a good question. Actually. I know there's people that made, uh, some, some research about that. I think the first ever half pipe on the East coast was at, um, uh, Bell Neige here, uh, a little south from Trombla. Um, it, you know, Sesover had a park as well. It was, it was very, very difficult because um, skiers didn't want more injuries on uh, on their terrain. So mm-hmm. having having jumps that were open and f- to everybody was a bit of an issue. So a lot of a lot of ski resorts stayed away from it. But all the small ones, like I say, say so far, Belnage, they all had some jumps. Tromla was pretty up there. I'd say, you know, early 90s to uh, end of, you know, 97, 98 is where it really took mm-hmm. off. And the jumps start to be big. And every uh, every ski resort invested some money in, in, uh, in machinery to be able to do the half pipes or maintain uh, okay. the jumps and all that. But, yeah, it's it all started at, say, mid-90s that mm-hmm. it really took off. And so, what is it about you? Um, take a sip of your coffee because it's going to get cold. But what <laughs> yeah. is it about you, Phil, that um, when you and maybe you've never a- a- thought about this, <clears throat> answer this question for yourself. But what is it about you that sort of instigated your your desire to be sort of off track, so to speak? Like you're learning to ski, but now you you keep looking at these snowboarders. You don't want to necessarily do snowboarding, but you're like, I, I want to play like that. What was it about you that made you do that? Well, you know, you know like I said, my first goal was to become a um, <clears throat> Sorry, a professional hockey player at, at a young age. I really wanted to uh, to play hockey, but it was um, wasn't really happening. Yeah, so I switched to skiing. I kind of saw in skiing a way to do it myself, which you know, hockey. If you don't have someone pushing you, like if, if mm-hmm. your parents are not, and not to say anything that my parents didn't help me or anything, but it was, you know, they worked nine to five all week and weekends to be able to, go, you know, go and play hockey in some, you know, 100 kilometers away. It, it wasn't something they wanted to do. And, you know, I, I respected that and I understand how, how it works. As a parent now, I know that it's uh, it's time <laughs> consuming, you know, and it's not easy. So I think I saw in skiing something that I could actually push myself and, maybe eventually make a living out of it and um but i always had you know it, it since day one when i was a kid i used to jump off the sofa i used to climb up the table jump down and you know do backflips in the snow and mm. it's it's something that uh always been flowing in me to, to get the adrenaline rush or do something new and just just the feeling of accomp- accomplishing something new mm-hmm. for me was was a was very special and it's still today is is something that i uh, thrive for but uh, back then, it was um, it was just being able to see uh, uh, something that I could actually, you know, do myself, and trying to push it as to see how far I could take it. Mm. Speaking of that, do you ever do you remember the first time you did a trick that you thought you couldn't do, and you were like, okay, I gotta, I want to make this happen? Yeah. That? Oh yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's <laughs> actually the trick that I that put me on the map is mm. uh, is uh, it's called the switch backflip. So what you do is that you come in the jump full speed backward. You do a full backflip and you land backwards.
forward. So you actually lose the ground for uh, for a period of time. You can't really see anything because you, you throw yourself backward. And then once you can spot the landing, you can slow your rotation down. And back then, we didn't have any foam pits or airbags. <laughs> or So it was um, <laughs> a lot of nights that I would just lay in my bed and close my eyes and just sort of like visualize myself doing the trick over and over. And I could, oh, wow. you know, I could totally... I, I could totally see the motion of it, and you know, if you if you break it down, it's pretty much the same position as you would do a front flip. So what you do is that you got to go uh, sort of like against the grain, because once you take you, you go off the takeoff, you got to go the opposite direction. You know, mm -hmm. the the natural direction will take you towards your your if you're seeing backward, will take you towards your toes. Mm -hmm. But for a switch backflip, you kind of have to take off and leave on your heels to be right, able to, right. to stop the the the, the momentum and then spin so the first time I did it was here in Tremblant a pretty big jump and I remember telling my friend that I was going to try something new and that if something went wrong you know that he needed to ski down and come and help me out and because I visualized it so much I nailed it the first try and it was uh, it was wow. for me one of the most exciting thing because that was um, early in 99 so January of 99 and I registered for the 1999 US Open which was happening in February in Vail okay. and I've learned that switch backflip and I also learned the switch rodeo which was two new tricks that no one's ever done before but you know back that's pre-media, uh, mm -hmm. social media and everything. So you didn't know really until you got there and saw what people were doing. And um, I remember showing him Vel, and I had those two tricks that I... I could do very well, and no one, you know, I, I, I was pretty sure no one ever done before. And uh, there's an old story about I lost all my airline lost all my skis and my my boots. So I showed up in Vail, I had nothing. I had to rent boots. <laughs> I borrowed skis from Solomon. The the the, the guy at no Solomon way. gave me demo skis, so I had like the demo shaky bindings. And um, I showed up at the qualifier and qualified for the big show, which was happening at night. And uh, yeah. But after watching everybody ski, and that's the cool thing about the U.S. Open. It's like every other sport. I mean, U.S. Open, you can everybody can enter it. I mean, X Games, uh, Olympics, you know, all those those sports. You're competing against the best from the previous years who qualified. Mm. U.S. Open, everybody enters. You know, everybody can register. So if you win the U.S. Open, you're actually beating everybody that can afford to go it to, right, to right. go there. So for me, the U.S. Open was the most prestigious event to win and um, going through all the qualification I, I sort of like peeked at what the guys were doing I was like you know I got two tricks that I haven't seen today and uh, I did a first qualifier at night because we went from about 275 skiers to, uh, to eight skiers wow. and um, I remember there were some rumors because I told a few guys that I was doing those tricks. I remember Johnny Mosley came to me and he said, "Hey, I heard uh, you, you got something special for us tonight." And I was like, <laughs> "Yeah, we'll see how you know my first jump goes. But if, if everything goes according to plan, I I, um, I definitely will uh, show you guys something that I've been working on." And I qualified with a Cork 900 that gave me first place for the the, the final uh, final jump, and I did the switch backflip as the final jump and landed and won the event so that was wow, that was day cool. one for me as a professional skier because uh right after that people started to call me and wanted to endorse me so 
It was uh, yeah, just talking to you, man. I still have goosebumps. <laughs> I still have goosebumps, man. It's it, it was a very special moment. Um, that's kind of going against my dad's will as well because my dad was a dentist he always wanted yeah. us to sort of like follow his path <laughs> and I was working in the bar and you know he, 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 it was wasn't too close to my dad back then in those years but then I, I remember calling him that night and say dad I'm I'm the 1999 US Open champion and he cried on the phone he was no. like you know what I never I never expected you to uh, to do uh, anything uh, you know like I was watching you jumping off the, cl- the couch as a kid and I was like what what you know what are you doing and then to uh to accomplish that was uh for for me and for him something something very special and what about mom was mom like what yeah, are mom, you doing yeah, I, don't, I don't think mom could ever she came to some competition and she could never watch she'd always close her eyes when I was in the air that was a very stressful mo- uh, moment for mom and uh yeah to this day I don't think she she's ever seen anything live from me because she said like, she couldn't watch every time I was going off the jump she closed her eyes so mm. she watched some of the ski movies I made obviously but it was uh, it was very stressful for her. <laughs> so when's when's the first big crash happen for you where you kind of go holy jumping? Uh, d- yeah, that's the first <laughs> the first uh, injury I got because I didn't get too too badly injured during my career. But um, nice. yeah, I got uh, I got a call from Warren Miller in 2000 and mm-hmm. um, after the U.S. Open and they uh, he invited us to Breckenridge, Colorado to go for a film shoot with all the 10. Boys, me, Mike Douglas, uh, Vincent, and JF and JP. And uh, I remember because growing up, Warren Miller, we used to go mm. every fall in Tromla. There was a, a, a they'd show the movie. You know, we'd go get our ski pass in the fall and yeah, then yeah, yeah. watch the Warren Miller movie. So it was it was part of you know my me growing up. So it was a big deal, definitely, for me to go and and, and ski for uh, for Warren Miller. And it was the 50th anniversary, so the 50th movie. And it was actually called Warren Miller 50. And um, yeah, the crazy jumps built for us in Breckenridge. We had a chef on the hill with food and everything. You know, it's the whole the whole red carpet when you're doing <laughs> stuff with the, for for uh, for Warren Miller. So I uh, I remember going off. What he wanted us. We had a, a two quarter pipes and a jump in the middle, and they wanted as many people in the air at this you know at the same time. And uh, my plan was to, the, the guys were doing uh, the quarter pipes, and then I was doing a switch back flip, which he really wanted to get on film because that was, you know, the new, the new trick. And um, I was going in the middle, and I remember taking a jump with too much speed and over, I stopped my rotation. That was the good thing about any backflip or, uh, or, um, or a switch backflip. And once you spot the landing, you can sort of arch your back and adjust to the height that you have mm-hmm. to slow down your rotation. Slow down my rotation as much as I could, but ended up landing at the bottom of the landing on my toes a little bit. Both skis came off. I put my hands on the ground, and both shoulders came out at the same time. So, dual shoulder dislocation. (laughs) And I remember knowing right away that there was definitely something wrong with my arm. And then, as I'm like sort of like yelling because I can, my both my arms are in the air and I can't bring them down. There's extreme pain when I trying to push my uh, my elbows down and left shoulder came back in right away and I knew that the right one was still out and I couldn't I didn't know what to do so kind of freaked out grabbed my arm ski patrols were right on, on me right away and uh, they took me to the, uh, the clinic there in Breckenridge and Warren Miller took care of everything I didn't have to put my you know wow. do anything money wise but uh, I got to the hospital and the guy gave me two pills like I'll be back in 15 minutes and 
I'm laying there in pain, and then the doctor came back in, popped my shoulder back in, and I was like, oh. That felt really good, but that was a very awkward feeling, and it's something that I, after that day, you know, once you pop a joint out, usually mm-hmm. it usually comes back in, back out when when you do the same sort of like the same movement. So I had uh, a few other incident when it came out, and um, that was that probably you know a few concussion, but that was definitely the most painful mm. painful thing I had to go through the. Uh, and it followed me the rest of my career when I was landing and put my hand down. Sometimes my my, my arms would come out, and it's uh, yeah, it's not yeah, it's, it's not a good feeling. It's the interesting side that not everybody understands no. about the career of exactly. uh, those crazy <clears throat> stunts that yeah. people are doing. So as as you're doing this in the late '90s, early 2000s, obviously this is not the norm, but it's starting to explode a little bit. And there's on the other side in Tremblant, you've got this kind of history of you know the Turgeons, the Gays, the all these different families that are really big skiers in Alpine. Yeah. So are you looked at in this place kind of as this unicorn maniac over here, or are you you know how how are the families in essence of, well, of skiing? Just to along? just to give you an idea, I mean I used to spend all day in the train park, and um, I knew Eric from. From a long time ago, like from from those days, Eric was uh, was skiing and and training every day with the with the Tromlock Club. But he would um, after the uh, the the day was done training, he would put his uh, his twin tip skis and come in the park with me. <laughs> to <clears throat> and his dad didn't like that at all. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> Stefan and. Uh, <clears throat> Stefan and Eric and uh, Chris, yeah, Chris was there as well, but uh, Stefan and Eric definitely um, enjoyed that side of skiing as well. Nice. Which, you know, probably would reason because uh, ski racing is so structured and, mm-hmm. you know, free, the, what I was doing is more like you hang out, you take the lift, you look, you know, you there's people in the train park just hanging out. So it was, it was more, um, more free than, you know, having mm-hmm. the really concentrate and ski and tune your skis and wax your skis and so Eric would come in the park and he could throw down pretty good like he had he had some moves like I definitely Eric could have made you know the um, the switch to free skiing and he, he probably would have done uh, really good but obviously he made the right decision in my book <laughs> he decided okay to stick himself. to skiing and did okay for himself <laughs> and uh, but he was definitely definitely uh, a good free skier and I think that that in a way that's that um, explained why he was so good on the, when he was skiing because he always he had a love for skiing in general, and uh, the fact that he was able to, to switch from from racing to, to free skiing, mm. uh, I think that had uh, probably had something to do uh, with mm. the reason he had such an amazing career. Tell me about the professionalization of what you were doing. Like you, you start out and you say, "Okay, now I'm a professional." Yeah. What, what did that mean then, and how has that changed to now? And what's good about it, and what's bad about it? Uh, back then, I mean, you know, the only the only skier that was you know getting paid for doing what he loved that wasn't ski racing or mogul skiing was Glenn Plate. Glenn Plate. Well, there was Scotchman as well. I mean, all those extreme guys were jumping off cliffs. And Nordface was one of the first company to endorse those kind of guys. And K2 followed, and these guys were getting paid to jump off cliffs and do crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. But there was only a handful of them. Mm-hmm. And it was a very niche place for for skiers to be able to make a living out of it because it was it was it was very underground. But then, when they re, when the ski industry realized that you know everybody was interesting in what we were doing, 
and they were selling skis because of it because that's all it is you know if you mm -hmm. market someone if you want if you give money to someone for doing what he likes to do you want you want some money you want right, to right. generate some money out of it so uh, return on investment so that's like the basic of marketing so if when Oakley first signed me, then Solomon and, you know, a lot of companies were, were throwing money at skiers like us because that was the, the cool thing. You know, like everybody wanted to see us do some jumps and in the movies and all that stuff. And it was, you know, being a prof professional skier is you're getting, it means you're getting paid doing, you know, doing skiing. Mm -hmm. And for me, after winning a, a professional competition you know all the endor endorsement followed and i traveled all over the world the world and um we uh made a living out of it mm -hmm. and it, it, it was pretty cool and um yeah it's nowadays it's it's a different game because you know we we'd ski competitions all year and then in between those competitions we would work to do uh, ski movies which right. would re which would come out in the fall Nowadays, you have social media. If you if somebody does something crazy, it's online. Right. Ten minutes after, and then mm -hmm. you know it's a hundred thousand views or five hundred thousand views, and then you have to start over all, all over the next day. Which right. we worked all year to do one thing. Now you have to constantly reinvent you, and that's 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 the tough the mm. tough part of it. I think these days because you know it's not it's not about how many competitions you can win. It's how many views you get, how many people are following you. So it's it's a different it's a different ball game. But um, I mean that's where you know that's where the money is mm. now, and that's that's yeah constantly have to be on top of it. You have to come up with something new all the time. So it definitely plays in um, in the way uh, people can get hurt as well mm -hmm. because you're always pushing. Right. You always have to come come out of your comfort zone, and it's that's when injuries happen. Yeah, because it feels like, I mean, if, if you what put yourself back in 2005 or something, and you look forward and you see what the guys are doing now, could you have contemplated that 17 years ago that what guys are doing now you would. What they were doing? It's um, it's it's really hard. I mean, the training facilities changed a lot, which which allowed the sport to uh, evaluate. Like the the evolution of the sport went really, really, really fast that way. And um, you know, back then we didn't have what they had nowadays to uh, to train on. So for sure, we had an idea of where the sport was going to be, but. If if you ask me today, back then, if I if I thought kids were gonna do you know twenty two hundred rotations and four backflips and you know I don't think I could have said yes because like I said we didn't have the same facility but now you can try stuff on an airbag and right. less consequences if you do miss it so it's um, it's it's definitely interesting to see where it's at now and what the kids are doing. Quick break here, and we'll be back in a couple of seconds with our podcast guest. Are you in the world of human performance, or do you seek to perform at your best each day physically and mentally? Matrix Fitness is a company dedicated to helping you succeed. 
Whether you train people for a living or you live to train, Matrix has the equipment to help you make it happen, and they have the guidance and support you need to make your best decisions. Matrix recently engaged performance coach Mark Fitzgerald as their head of performance, and his wealth of knowledge and experience in training people and building leading-edge performance spaces is unparalleled. Mark and the rest of the team at Matrix will stop at nothing to ensure you reach your objectives in human performance. For more information and a free consultation, go to teamupwithmatrix.com forward slash CA and explore the possibilities today. Hey there, just want to circle back on some of the things we've done with reconditioning in the last little while. Um, we have all our courses online now, uh, R1 Foundations, R2 Designs, and our R3 Collab. These courses are available to you for purchase anytime you want. You can get on there and, and buy them anytime you'd like on our website, www.reconditioninghq.com. Com. Throughout the year now, we're going to be running eight-week, once-a-week meetings where we teach up uh, and walk through some of the material as you're walking through. We're going to establish calendars. The first one starts for our R1 Foundations course, March 28th, where we just walk through all that information and make sure you understand it on a weekly basis. And if you can't come, we'll record the meetings and you can watch them later if you want. Uh, so it's really an opportunity for you to digest things at your pace with help and support. And we're going to do that in linking to a community we've created, the Reconditioning Revolution Mastermind Community. This is a private community where we're going to gather people who are in and interested in reconditioning and understanding the human performance world, networking with people, expanding your circle of influence. That's what this is all about. And touching and connecting with one another. We've been so distant from one another for so long now. This is all about bringing us together under that roof of reconditioning. And we're super excited about it. And lastly, just want to let you know the IHPS is on. I've been talking about it in this podcast with Mark Fitzgerald and it's Going to be rocking and rolling uh, June 10 to 12 in Mont-Tremblant, Quebec. You can find all of this information on our website. Again, reconditioninghq.com. We're back. Enjoy the rest of this podcast. How long does your so-called professional career last? And what brings it to a, a culmination? Um, like I said, I turned pro in uh, 99. And... Um, I skied professionally till 2005. Okay. Uh, I got offered a job from uh, from Oakley uh, in uh, 2004, and uh, they wanted me to be a sports marketing manager for them and be able to do still do the skiing thing, but then take care of all the athletes for both skiing uh, and mountain biking. And I was also taking care of. Um, of uh, all the Olympic sports, so triathlon, um, track and field, uh, speed skating, and um, it was interesting for me because it kind of gave me an opportunity to sort of like turn my ski career into something, you know, pretty good, like a, mm-hmm. a good job. But and I was getting at a point in in my career where. It was harder for me to stay on top. I got a few injuries. Kids were pushing really hard. And for me, it was very important to be able to always bring something new to skiing when mm-hmm. I was out there. I didn't want to be the kind of guy who was just, you know, 
pull the rubber band till it till it snap and trying to do whatever I needed to do to, to fit in mm-hmm. and I, I, I always wanted to uh, bring something new when I was out there skiing and when I started to notice that it was getting harder and harder to uh, to stay on top I was like started to look for something something else and that opportunity came came along so for me it was the best of both worlds but I didn't expect the um, the job to be as much corporate mm. as it as it was you know they they put it to me on a on a silver platter and say you know what <laughs> you'll have the both the both best uh, the best, best of, of both, both worlds world, yeah. you're gonna be able to ski and then you'll be taking care of athletes you'll be out there in every event and be able to film and all that and I was like you know what I don't have to push the boundaries to a point where I'm out of my comfort zone I can get injured I you know I'll have a job I could still you know be out there and have fun but it, it quickly turned into a full corporate job that you know mm-hmm. nine to five in the office in Ville Saint Laurent and so it was a bit of a da- downfall for me not being able to being able to um, do uh, the the ski thing as much as it as, as I was doing it before and slowly I went down down the drain and it, it came with the thing that I had to take care of all the athletes so mm-hmm. a lot of drinking a lot of partying and follow the scene and I it, you know it was definitely slowly but surely became uh, very dark days for me in that mm-hmm. in that period of my life so it's um, I got fired from Oakley after two years working for them because it, it wasn't working anymore they could see that I wasn't happy hmm. and I was kind of like abusing um, alcohol and it was yeah it was it was dark days for me hmm. uh, I'd, I'd say around 2000 2006 2007 so what what pulled you out of that um, it uh, it took a few years because um, I was really you know trying to figure out what to do and I moved back here in Tremblant and didn't know what the future had for me and you know I was I'd still be drinking and partying with my friend like it was 1999 or 2000 (laughs) and kind of like spiraled down man to a point where I was very very unhappy I I didn't feel good about myself at all didn't know what to do you know good thing for me I had my girlfriend that I'm still with today Mm. and uh, she kind of saw me going down and I was really out of shape I got you know I went up to 220 pounds at my best I'm usually you know 185 190 so out of shape I didn't feel good about myself and my girlfriend told me she's like you know I I don't like the the path you're taking and um, we're at a split and I'm going right and if you know you either come with me or you you keep going the way you're doing but it, mm. it, it'll be without me and I I realized at that point in time that it was the, she was the only good thing that happened to me you know wow. that, that I had so I decided to from I woke up one morning hung over as hell and I said you know what this is it I'm not wow. going to drink anymore that's awesome and it's been 13 years and since that day never had um, knock on wood but never never went back to drinking and it's it was the best decision that I made because I started to get back into shape. I uh, joined forces with my brother here in, at the at the shop. 
in uh, you know we we've been together ever since and uh, so was it Ben that opened the store or you guys yeah Ben opened it? it actually it's it's funny because Ben when I was still competing Ben started the shop in 2001 and because I was making good money for for um, f- from skiing uh, Ben didn't want to go to my my dad for help financially and all I needed to do was so he could get a credit approved I signed you know I signed a, a, a paper for him to, to for the bank and he started the shop we were at the bottom of Daniel Daniel Chance back then so Ben was only doing it in the uh, summertime mm. he would rent the uh, the rental place from Daniel Chance down downstairs empty the whole the whole place in the fall and then bring everything back in in the spring and uh, yeah so I had no clue you know that was the last thing I wanted to I was thinking of doing was was joining forces with Ben because that was his his little thing and I needed always, a job, and yeah, uh, yeah. Were you got, well, always a mountain biker? Yeah, thing? always. Yeah, yeah. You know, always loved biking. That was my summer thing when I was in skiing, and uh, started as a BMXer as a kid. You know, loved it, and uh, yeah, just made you know it, it. BMX turned into mountain biking, and yeah. what's with all of the guys who are as tall as you are? It seems like BMX guys always put themselves in these little tiny bikes, and they're huge yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. I was working well, with that. Was one ago. thing too of me, you know, in the ski world. Like I was a giant compared to all the and the other guys you yeah, know yeah. That, was, that was always something that people would make fun of me he's like you're you're more of a hockey player than a skier you know especially for freestyle what are you doing well I remember a few years ago I got to work a little bit with Tori Nyhog who was one of the best uh, BMXers yeah, in yeah, I know. for a while I know he is. and Tori's a big man yeah. like he could play linebacker yeah. you know big legs yeah. and you're like and you ride that yeah <laughs> <laughs> a little 20 inch wheel bike <laughs> yeah no that's it and so Tell me about your girl. Like, where did you meet her? And it sounds like a special person. Yeah, I uh, actually met her through my uh, my and uh, my girlfriend of the time. She was uh, she, she Isabel was hanging out with uh, uh, my girlfriend's sister a lot. That's how I met her the first time, and then um, we didn't see each other for a long time. And then I saw her again while I was working for Oakley in Montreal, and you know started to talking to her. And I was. I, been single for a couple of years and you know it wasn't you know it was fun for a while but then I got to a point where I, I, I wanted someone in my life and you know she thought she was very 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 bright girl very very beautiful uh, person both inside and out and uh, started to you know exchanging emails and saw each other a few times and started to uh, to date and I was still at Oakley so she was she was there when I was at the top and uh, she also saw me at the very bottom so mm-hmm. you know for her to be to stick with me was uh, was uh, very very special for me to you know she could have said hey buddy I don't like what you're doing. I don't like uh, where you're heading. And well, she actually said that, but she mm-hmm. gave me she actually gave me the, the choice. You know, she liked me enough to to give me the possibility to get out of it. And uh, yeah, she was she you know she's from Montreal, but her parents had a place in here in Tremblant, and um, we moved together uh, in 2007 here in Tremblant. And yeah, I've been together ever since, and we have a little daughter that's Very five cool. years old, turning six uh, April twenty first. So, yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Somebody told me the other day they said uh, they missed 
the park being managed by you on Tromblon that you used to go in and like make all the the terrain. Yeah, and the well, jumps that, and that's stuff. the thing. Like, when when I, did you stop doing that? Um, I did stop when at first. You know, Tromblon is um, a big corporation, obviously, mm-hmm. and the way they worked, there's a syndicate for for all the employees. And um, when I when I stopped working for Oakley, I came up here and and worked at the park and. Um, I was working at Caribou. I went back to the Caribou for upright ski, and that was a bad idea. That's what kind of like spiraled me down. But um, I figured, you know, with my knowledge of, of jumping and all that stuff, I could be pretty good at that building and designing uh, stuff on the on the ski hill. So I was doing that, and I was very passionate about it. Like I'm, I'm a very, very passionate guy. I, when I do something, I do it well. I don't like, I don't like to cut corners. I'm sorry. And um, yeah, I um, I I stopped because I was working in the shop in the summer, and winter was uh, I needed to do something in the winter, and I was you know pretty complimentary for 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 the type of life that I had back then, but uh, wanted to do something to be able to bring some money in for the shop in the winter as well, so started you know when the fat bikes came came along, we decided that. You know, Ben didn't really believe in it, but I, I, I was very confident that we, we could do something and rent some bikes, sell some bikes, and do uh, do fat biking in the winter. And it's such a small window because we bike. Summer biking is from anywhere between April, early April to mid-April all the way to sometimes end of November. Mm. So it leaves December, January, February, March. It's four months that you have to cover and uh, fat biking came along, and it was it, 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 from the first year we did it, it, it turned out to be good. We, we generated wow. numbers, and the accountant was like, hey, you guys are screwed. You got to do this every year now. <laughs> so uh, we, we found a way to fill in the gaps because, you know, being, you know, people would be like, hey, you come from skiing. Why don't you open a ski shop in the winter? And, you know, there's a lot of competition in that mm-hmm. in that branch here in Tromblon. And I didn't want to empty all the shops and do some and bring some skis, and uh, for me, it didn't make sense. And so we... Uh, uh, yeah, we found a way to um, operate the uh, the shop all year long, and it's 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 been great. It's, it it works really well. When, what do you like about what you do now? Um, it's it's hard to describe, man. There's just there's just something about bikes that I love. Just I love working on bikes. I like being in the shop. I like you know the the combination with the coffee shop. It brings people around and. It's, uh, I'm a very, you know, I, I like people, I like to talk to people, mm. but uh, my, my passion for building bikes, fixing bikes, I don't know where it came from. I guess my grandfather was a fixer. He liked, he, he liked to work on stuff all the time, and I would be, I'd go in his wood shop and watch him, and, and it's, it's just, you know, I, I'm, I'm very happy every morning I wake up, and I'm stoked to come in the shop, and That's it's, cool. you know, it's been like that for uh, 12, 13 years now, and it's... Um, it's it's still it still interests me a lot so and I like to keep keep up to date with the new technologies and I do online courses about biking mechanics and all that stuff and you know it's it's very interesting stuff and I don't I, I can't seem to to get bugged of it, it it's, I just like it it's that's just the way it is I guess it's, that's it's awesome. very fun tell me about the the industry of skiing today like when you look at you watch like. 
I was curious too because you see the your sport became an Olympic sport. Yeah. What did that mean to you in some sense? Like you being sort of a, a, a father figure in it in some sense, and looking at it now, what does that mean to you? Do you think it's too corporate, or you think it's that's a really cool thing for for it? I think it's cool in the way that some kids have dream of Olympics since they're very young, and you know to be able to compete in the sport that you like at that level is something special. It's it never for me. It's it never really uh, was a dream of mine for to for that sport to be in the Olympics because I always thought that every sport that you know requires a human to judge something mm. is always it's always going to be different be, or hard because you never know what that person looks into and when you when you start. Um, putting criteria on mm. uh, on different moves and different different things that you're doing, and you you start to etiquette the uh, the, the sport. Right. It takes all the freedom out of it. I, right. I find, and the reason we started free skiing was so that you could you know do your own thing and do you know not being told by anyone because right. don't get me wrong, it's that sport started because mogul skiing got to a point where. The FIS was holding the grip on the evolution of that sport, and mm. JP, JF, and Mike could do things in the moguls that they, they didn't get judged for. Right, and it was it was pissing these guys off to not be able to express themselves and ski the way they wanted and do what they thought you know that sport should go to, mm. and. Um, it's for me. It's been the same way. Even if I, you know, I wasn't competing at that level in 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 that category of skiing back then, not being able being able to express myself in a way that I wanted to was didn't didn't I didn't like that. I didn't like, and I think you know, routine for me is very boring. Mm. I have a very hard time trying to do the, the same thing over and over. And that that's probably one of the reasons why I like the the, um, the bike shop so much is that mm-hmm. it's always it's always different. It, it's in a nutshell, it's the same, but there's always something new and new different bikes, right. and new things. So it, it it's always fresh. And free skiing for me was always fresh as well. So um, you know nowadays um, you can learn a run and stick to that run over and over and over and just adapt it to the different different courses that people right, build for right. for those events. And you'll do well. And for me, that didn't work out. I I couldn't I couldn't do that. I'd like you know what I like was always come out with something new and trying to do something different and to be to have to prove and do stuff to please the judges. That's something I had a I had issues with. And I know other people have issues with. But like I said, I, I'm stoked that it's it it's where it's at. I think it went back to a little bit too much corporate in some ways. But it's it's just the way it, mm-hmm. things are, you know. Like free skiing, we wanted to keep to ourselves. I remember back we had the FIS sucks jerseys on, and we were all rebellion about it. <laughs> but you know, if something attracts a lot of atta- uh, attention, of attention, yeah, yeah. then the big corporates will want to take a grab <laughs> over it, and you know, profit financially out of it. So it's it it was bound to happen. Yeah, I think there's still out there some skiers that are sort of like fighting against that and trying to push the sports in a way that we were pushing it back then but unfortunately that's not where the money's at now so it's very hard for these guys to make a living out of it 
and um, it's uh, for me like I, I watch like everyone I watched the Olympics and I was amazed with what these guys were able to do now but I still believe to this day that there are basic stuff in skiing that hasn't been done yet hmm. and that's because Everybody wants to add a, an extra rotation or an extra flip, but you know, basic stuff has different ways to take off. Carving into the jumps, both backwards and forward, using different edges. Those are s stuff that I that I uh, kept on the table that I didn't have time to to push and mm -hmm. develop. But um, there's you know that type that I'm a little angry about. I still talk to the, the kids that I'm, I'm like, hey, you guys should try to do this and do that. And, It's hard to get their attention because they're like, "What are you talking about?" And it's for me, it's it's been something that I want to do since since you know day one, trying to find new ways to bring you know to bring to my skiing. But some uh, some people are um, innovators and some mm -hmm. people are followers. So, do you still the, play in the park when you? I do ski, actually. Like, it's yeah. a little bit as I an mean, old guy who yeah, knows what it's going to feel yeah, like yeah. when you. But that's funny <laughs> because last a couple of weeks ago we did a we did a thing with uh, Alexi Godbu who was in town because Salomon is um, took six of the uh, skiers of today and they made they're making a movie about you know what these guys are doing now and who their influencer was uh, were and Alexi picked me so uh, we spent a full week here with Mike Douglas filming and um, uh, we did some laps in the park and it was there was three generation it was me there was Alexi Godbuner's Phil Langevin okay. who's you know yeah, yeah. The last up-and-coming kid, so uh, we did some laps in the park, and it was pretty, pretty funny. Because just, just a quick, quick note, you know, Phil Langevin showed up, and uh, I told him, I was like, "Hey, can you, you know, can you spend a little bit of time with us in the park? And we'd like to shoot you and ask you a few questions." He's like, "Yeah, yeah, just, do you mind if I, if I warm up a little bit before?" And I was like, "Yeah, no, no, no problem, man. We'll follow you." And the run that Phil did in his first run, warming up would have been a winning run in my time competing so that just gives you an idea of where the sport is at now and yeah. how crazy the evolution is but um yeah it was definitely cool to, to spend some time in the park i can't i can't do all the trick that i used to do because i can't afford to go down yeah 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 but uh i still still have a few tricks up my sleeve and i can <laughs> i can still throw down uh, a few things so well that, watching that it this year i can't i can't imagine where it's actually like there has to be it's almost like you know the 100 meter dash there's like some point where you're not going to go faster than that you know? yeah and it, it seems like we're getting to close to that precipice of you know there's only so many rotations you can actually yeah. do before you hit the ground yeah exactly <laughs> and that, that's that's something too well, you know mike asked us you know where what do you think because i remember him asking me in 2003 where do you think it's going from now And, you know, we couldn't tell. And I think right now, like you said, the um, there's only so many rotations you can do. The jumps are three times bigger than we were than they were uh, when we were jumping. Mm. Consequences are incredible, huge. like yeah. huge. And, you know, if you if you come up short on, uh, on a 75-foot tabletop, you know, it's, it's going to hurt. <laughs> so where tricks are going to go, like I... My goal was always to uh, spin both directions. So, you know, you either do rotations to the left or rotations to the right. I was the first one to do a back-to-back -back 900 and a half pipe, which is basic tricks now that you do in the pipe. But 
that's one part of the sport that I really pushed through my career, and it's cool because kids are doing that, doing that now. It's like it, if you don't spin both directions, you're not even in the game. So that was that was definitely something that I wanted skiing to go towards, and it's 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 that's where it's at now. Hmm. But trick wise, it's like I don't know because I don't want I don't want kids to do too many spins because in a way you're taking away the style part of the sport if you just want to spin to win. It's not going to look as good. You're going to miss some grabs, and you know it's important to keep keep the uh, the, um, the the tricks look. They, they have to look good in my book. So to keep the balance between crazy spins and good style is a very thin line. So mm-hmm. it's it's going to be interesting to see where it's going to go from now. Because tell, tell me about the language of the of the sport because it was funny we were talking a little while ago and you said uh, it's hard to translate into French because of all the names of the things yeah. are in English and yeah. where what's how do how does a, a trick get named? Like I think people would find that interesting. You know, you, you hear all the the language even the I heard the story about the mute grab which yeah. I think is the the person who who did the grab was does is doesn't speak and yeah. doesn't have voice so they called it that but now they've changed it back to I his know. name or something it's, to that it's, effect it's uh it's <clears throat> tricks usually get called by named by the guy who sort of invented it mm-hmm. i mean most of the grabs in skiing came from snowboarding okay and grabs from snowboarding came from skateboarding so it's it's kind of like just moved in from mm-hmm. one sport to the other and um tricks usually get named by the guy who does them but i mean if you're you know rotations are uh, called um by uh either on rails that would be 90 degrees but 180 degrees 360s uh, mm-hmm. 540 720s so that w- those are basic rotation so that when you call when you hear a 1080 that means three rotation double cork means those rotation will be inverted so you sort of like take your head down a little bit and spin off axis and uh yeah the grabs i mean They've all come from from from, from board sports, yeah, different yeah. game, different 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 sports, and different people that name them. But it's uh, half the time most people don't even probably know where they came from. Not really. It's it's <laughs> been you know like there's a lot of people that try to rebrand some tricks, and I was like, hey buddy, you're doing the same thing that we were back then. You can't rename it. You know, they changed the Champlain Bridge, they rebuilt it. They didn't change the name. You know what I mean? Like it's you can't you think you can't take the uh, the credit for something you didn't invent. So that's cool. There's always been some uh, some controversy about that, but yeah, it's definitely a, a, a lingo that you know. It's is hard for a normal person mm-hmm. to, to relate to because it's it's uh, yeah it doesn't doesn't always make sense. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation was uh, selfishly I always enjoy kind of learning about to what people's lives are. Be- but I've heard lots about what you did, and so what w- what would last question to you is kind of what would you like your legacy to? If somebody says you know. Phil represented this to skiing in Quebec or in Canada. What would you like it to be in some sense? Hmm. I never really, to be honest, I haven't really thought about that. I always like to be known as someone who who tried to bring something new to the table every time I was out there. Um, <clears throat> to have someone come to me and say, hey, you know what, you... Um, you helped me out through my career because of, of the path you took and, and you know, the um, the tips you give me um, back then when I ask you a few questions so that I'm referring to uh, Alexi because uh, that's that's what he told me that, uh, you know, I kind of like opened the door for him. Mm-hmm. So that was very flattering and very, very, uh, very cool. But yeah, it's, you know, being one of the first guys to do it and um, 
to see where the sport's at now and having you know people come to me and say hey i remember you from back in the days and <laughs> that's you know it's it's always cool but you know being humble about it it's not you know i've done something i think my timing was very good mm. i uh definitely um stepped up my game and brought something to the table but i think you know like i said the timing was great and uh i'm very uh very humble about you know what 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 i did and i'm very very thankful for for what i was able to do travel the world and what mm -hmm. skiing brought brought me but uh now just to 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 get sometimes on social media you'll have this guy who do a, a switch backflip and he'll tag me in there at the loop warrior you know and give me some props for it so that's that's always that's always fun too that's cool to cool see and, yeah thank you sir thanks for taking the time hey today. thanks for having me man that was awesome appreciate it yeah thanks for joining us today on leave your mark i hope we've left a mark on you today and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.